Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. An attachment perspective on incompatible relationships, why some relationships are so difficult to heal, even if we put significant effort into understanding our partners and ourselves. To start with this talk, I'd like to offer an example of a classic dilemma that might cause friction in a relationship. This is not based on any couple that I've worked with in counseling. It's just something I cooked up based on a lot of different patterns I've seen uh, in working uh, with people in relationship and partners. So in this, I've created entirely out of whole cloth a couple named Alec and Bianca, and they've been together for two years, and both are painters, and they live in a nice open space where Alec does all of his work. Bianca, however, ever since the beginning of the two-year relationship, has kept her studio where she goes to do most of her work. Alec wants Bianca to give up her studio because it's expensive. They share their money and expenses. And he notes that their apartment would be big enough to do both their work. Bianca wants to, however, keep her studio. She believes it's essential to her work. She likes to go there and spend entire long days getting lost in painting, listening to music, talking with friends. She'll do other things at her studio besides painting. This conflict between whether or not they get to keep the studio escalates. Alec becomes increasingly emotional about it and upset. Bianca shuts down during the arguments and simply disconnects. Before we unpack that conflict in that relationship, it's important to understand that all of us are born with innate psychobiological systems that motivate us to establish attachments for both security and emo emotional regulation. Attachment means that we move towards others for protection and for help in dealing with the world. And it starts out, of course, when we're born, because we're all born prematurely, well before, easily far more than a decade before we can take care of ourselves and feed ourselves. So these early relationships have been shown to be especially influential. They create what's called internal working models, which are unconscious, they're not conscious, but unconscious patterns and beliefs, how we perceive others, what we expect from others, what we do when under stress, and so forth. So these unconscious patterns are stored in what's called the right hemisphere of the brain. And they're very, very durable, as we'll see. They're not 
completely frozen. We can address them, but they're very, very, very durable and sticky. So what needs to happen for us to have an ideal childhood that will help us throughout the course of our lives lead um, adaptive, highly functional life? Well, there's four qualities that over the course of the 50 years of attachment studies and clinical research has shown to be necessary for someone to feel secure in the world, secure with others. The first is having a caregiver that's available when we need, when we seek their attention. Available means they're proximal, they're in the same house, and that they pay attention when we cry or shout or laugh or run around or seek their attention. The second is that the caregiver be understanding, um, be capable of <clears throat> seeing what we're experiencing and express interest in it. So that's empathy, essentially. The third is a caregiver that is soothing, is reassuring when we're scared or frightened after setbacks, when we're sad, a parent that just when we get, we come close to them, they help us relax. Our bodies begin to settle. Our nervous systems go back to homeostasis. We feel comfortable. We're no longer in distress. And the fourth quality is a caregiver that delights in and appreciates our creativity our developmental achievements, uh, when we do something that uh, is new or a, a form of exploration that they see it and appreciate the fact that we're growing. So those are the four qualities. We need to feel someone's safe and available, someone's interested in us, someone's soothing, and someone appreciates and delights in our uh, growth. There are many social theorists and attachment psychologists that believe that very often it's the last one, the delight and appreciation that often is the most lacking in today's uh, family systems because there's so much stress placed on the parents. The parents don't have much social support, so they have to feed, clothe, uh, pay for education, get the pay for doctor's bills and so forth. So there's too much stress placed on parenting and delight and appreciation always, or not always, but very often isn't there enough. The, um, if a child is secure though, gets most of those developmental needs of a caregiver that's available and interested and caring and appreciative and the child grows up to be confident and um, will trust their partners, will state their needs clearly in relationships, will not flee intimacy, feel comfortable with requests for intimacy, but they won't be over-reliant on their partner. They'll have a lot of friends as well. So they won't depend or focus or fixate uh, on one person in their life. 
when a child is secure in uh, <clears throat> in 30 years, if you follow the child into adult life, then that child is has an extremely high chance of not having any psych significant psychiatric disorders, uh, substance abuse, or anything like that. They tend to be far happier in their jobs, and they also tend to live lives that they are finding fulfilled. Now, if a child doesn't feel all the time that the caregiver is available, sometimes when the caregiver is available, the child feels safe and secure, but the, very often the parent isn't available, maybe goes off to work suddenly for long hours, maybe has other children to attend to, maybe uh, just is only sporadically available, that child very often will be, become what's known as anxious or preoccupied in adult life. These are children that grow up to be adults that fixate anxiously on their primary partners. They are constantly expecting abandonment. They're prone to jealousy. They're prone to what's called fantasy bonds, which are being attracted to people who are emotionally unavailable. And at first, uh, visualizing how great the relationship will be and then ruminating incessantly uh, about the person who doesn't uh, show up or live up to their expectations. These people tend to be hypervigilant. They have a lot of core shame in an adult life, tend to have what's called imposter syndrome. They feel deep, deep inside that uh, they're not good enough. And um, they tend to be very emotional in relationships, more, more emotional than, than secure. The anxious child as early as one and a half when the, in a famous test known as the strange or stranger test, the child is brought into a room by the parent with this, a stranger, another adult. The, adult. the parent leaves the room and the one and a half year old toddler is there. Unlike the secure child that will cry for a little while and then turn to the stranger, connect and start enjoying the presence of the other, the anxious child will just sit there and stare at the door, crying inconsolably, not, not turn towards the other adult, not explore the room. The, um, this, so the dismissive child, on the other hand, who grows or avoidant child, gives up on attachment. They have parents that are not generally very soothing at all when they, and the parents uh, at times just are not capable of making the child feel seen or appreciated. The dismissive or avoid, the avoidant child, dismissive adult feels then over time engulfed by the parent, smothered or just disappointed uh, and over time becomes very, very self-reliant, doesn't look to other people for intimacy or getting their important needs met, um, and tends to block, as Dan Siegel and other point, others point out, 
emotions from being processed by their frontal lobe. They tend to block subcortical information. These are people that in relationships can be very distance-seeking and overly logical. The drawback is that they're so self-reliant that when anything complicates their self-reliance, they tend to become very anxious and they can freak out. Um, but not in relationships. Their tendency is just to disconnect when things get tough. They're easily bored also very quickly. They might, uh, after about three to six months, lose interest once the dopamine recedes. And then finally, there's the disorganized child whose caregivers, which were supposed to be the source of safety, are actually so inconsistent and often emotionally overwhelming that their parents became a source of fear. And so this child has a tendency to freeze, uh, hide, and disasso dissociate under stress. In adult life, they're prone to opiate abuse and also to borderline personality disorder, where they have a tendency to react with rage when any attachment figure starts to uh, frustrate them, pull away, or disappoint them. So if we go back to um, Alex, uh, Alec and Bianca at the beginning, Alec wanted Bianca to give up the studio, uh, and Bianca wanted to keep her studio to go to every day and uh, just do her work in quiet, we see two people with different attachment styles, neither of which are secure. Alec has an anxious attachment style, a desire, uh, his desire to get rid of the studio is really masking a desire to get closer to Bianca and not have her disappear as much for long uh, periods every day that are uh, unpredictable. Bianca has an avoidant attachment. The studio is a space for her to disconnect and to get distance from the relationship. And we can tell that because she uses it for more than just her art. She uses it just as a way to uh, disconnect. So these are what's known as classically incompatible attachment styles. The anxious avoidance uh, pairing or the disorganized with either an anxious or an avoidance are all classically incompatible attachments. Even two disorganized, even two avoidance or two anxious people are considered to be incompatible, even though they have the same attachment style. Is a general rule of thumb, every relationship really needs one partner who's acting very secure, which means has a good ability to stay calm, has a good balance in their life, is capable of feeling comfortable with intimacy, not running from emotional situations, but also doesn't get too easily triggered. Uh, but if a relationship doesn't have one secure individual in it, then what will happen is an incompatible relationship where even spending great amounts of time and effort in therapy, 
has a very low likelihood of success. And we'll talk about what that means. Unfortunately, anxious and avoidant individuals are often attracted to each other because each recreates the dominant characteristics of each other's childhood. The anxious person had a partner who had a parent who consistently went away, though at times was very uh, soothing or uh, enjoyable, that parent would go away. And then they unconsciously, through what's called repetition compulsion, we unconsciously choose people that remind us of our early caregiving dynamics. So the anxious person will feel excited by and naturally gravitate towards um, someone who's emotionally incapable of feeling truly in, you know, relaxed and comfortable in sustained intimacy, or is just not available for a relationship at the time. Matheson, a great uh, famous American psychologist, said you could put one, uh, an anxious person in a room with 19 secure people and one avoidant, and that anxious person would somehow walk directly towards the avoidant and become enamored with them. Why do we have repetition compulsion? Because the right hemisphere always prefers the same and what it knew in childhood. The right hemisphere is formed very early in life, as early as the first few years and tends to gravitate towards people that have emotional characteristics similar to one's caregivers. So the anxiously attached, when they face challenges or stressors, they activate their attachment system and they immediately seek proximity to one person. They don't reach out or think too much about other friends or people who are available. They'll just fixate on that one person. And when their needs aren't met, when that one person isn't available or interested or prioritizing them, they'll become more emotional. They'll start protest behaviors They'll, like, ramping up, uh, punishing. They'll ruminate excessively, reread messages on um, uh, text messages. As I used to uh, say in talks, I was always amazed by how an anxious individual can uh, literally spend 30 minutes of a session with me going over the most incredible minutia of first I said, then he said, or then she said, then I said this and did that, then they turning away from me said this, and then blah, 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 and they'll read texts from me and ask me to decipher what an emoticon meant. And it's incredible the, the detail, the rumination can lead to. Um, it, paradoxically, anxious people often threaten to end the relationship, which is always a great joy to their friends who are tired of hearing about this one relationship over and over again, this one person who's emotionally unavailable, hearing about that avoidant person, they get tired of it. But then the anxious person, if they do end the relationship, will become flooded uh, bizarrely with positive memories <laughs> they forget all of the negatives and they 
experience regret and they come clamoring back to the partner and they get back in the rela relationship and all of their friends want to throw up their hands and give up because this person continually reconnects over and over and over again with the one person that isn't making them happy. And it's distressing for everyone. It's uh, to be someone who works in counseling my, like myself, it requires very often a Herculean effort to um to listen <laughs> to the to the ongoing repetitive drama the avoidant on the other hand gets bored quickly keeps one foot out the door and they get lost in social solo distractions the moment i hear someone's plays video games for hours is into com programming computers likes long distance running or skateboarding for hours it's very clear that they're avoidant and these are people who tend to in emotional situations tend to shut down feelings and then try to be overly analytical disorganized people conversely want relationships but have a very very strong fear of the people who are closest to them, just as they feared their parents in childhood. Hence, very, very angry, uh, often even punishing emotions are triggered. Uh, essentially, it's unresolved anger and rage stemming from the, the frightening actions of their caregivers in childhood. So whenever uh, a anxious or disorganized person seeks attention from someone who's emotionally avoidant, the avoidant will become more and more emotionally shut down. And these differences will invade all interactions. They can uh, invade even the smallest decision that the couple wants to make. Um, and their very perceptions of the world over time can differ considerably. Relationships based on incompatible attachments feature very often intense beginnings that don't go very slow. If two secure people meet, they'll very slowly, they won't dive in suddenly and spend, you know, 10 days together right from the get-go having intense sex and then have a blow-up fight and then reconcile. They'll take it slowly. They'll get to know each other. They're just as emotionally rewarded for intimacy as they are for sex, but they're willing to slowly go into a relationship. Um, on the other hand, incompatible relationships almost invariably have intense sexual fireworks that feel like magic at the beginning, followed uh, in three to six months with sudden switches in the dynamics of the relationship. At the beginning, the avoidant is just as fixated uh, as even or even more so than the anxious, the love bomb people. But shortly after, when as time passes, they'll become more and more distance and uh, disinterested when, when uh, the expe expectation of commitment is brought up. 
Um, anxious individuals generally feel pressure to have sex earlier than they're really interested. They'll do it because they're scared of rejection or abandonment, and they consistently with avoidant partners will wind up having sex way before they're ready to. Uh, these patterns are not only found in couples, but they're often found in workplaces. For example, emotionally dismissive, narcissistic bosses who tend to not be empathetic that much and are, uh, uh, will attract anxious, preoccupied subordinates. Uh, people who will um, are fixated on them uh, but are also capable of protest behaviors where they'll, uh, they'll resent their boss, yet at the same time they can't think of anything but, and they're incapable of leaving the job even though they're unhappy because they have imposter syndrome and a sense of core shame. So these unhappy dynamics for years can be played out in workplaces. Um, disorganized individuals very often can be very regressive at times, but they also can develop real skills, but they have a real problem working with others at times because they have negative view of both themselves and other people. Anxious people tend to have a negative view of themselves, but a positive view of attachment figures in a weird way. Uh, avoidant people have a very positive view of themselves. In the extreme cases, they're narcissistic, but they have a very low view of others. And secure people have a positive view of themselves and others. So, uh, for as I said, for relationships to work, you need to have a secure person, or at least someone who's what's called earned secure, someone who didn't start off life secure, but through therapy and a lot of help, learned how to make the secure choices. Um, and while some people like to say that they've been in an, an incompatible relationship where they're anxious and their partner is avoidant and that they've been together for years, when you look very closely at those relationships, you'll find chronic dissatisfaction and conflict. You won't find people who are always feel very uh, safe and uh, that the, both the intimacy and the sex is rewarding. Generally, it'll be the sex that's rewarding, but not as much the intimacy. No matter how much two people or two individuals in an incompatible relationship try to compromise, no matter how much love they feel for each other, they'll feel, the anxious person will feel very unsatisfied and will make concessions to the avoidant partner. But the problem is the avoidant partner always really doesn't have the interest on, of getting really closer. So healing the relationship is always something that they're, uh, they're forced into. They're literally, when in couples therapy, they're the ones that don't wanna be there. <laughs> They're dragged in because their partners will become so upset uh, and distraught that they go there. But deep down inside, they feel that to be happy, they just need to have their own space. The good news is that um, attachment styles, while they're 
stable, so stable that if you remember the examples of children, the anxious child, if you check in 25 years later, when they're an adult, has a 75 to 80% likelihood of being in the same exact attachment style. So to avoidance, secure and disorganized. So as early as one and a half years of age, the core dispositions and tendencies that govern how we interact with important people and how secure we feel in the world are, are deeply ingrained. Now that doesn't mean they're, we're stuck. 20% do change their attachment style, 10% for worse, 10% for better. And the ones that do change their attachment style from insecure to secure are the ones that work on it. And so just for the end of tonight's talk, I'm gonna just briefly survey uh, the ways that we work on our attachment patterns so that we can become increasingly secure in relationships. Uh, one of the more helpful that is used in the work of, uh, you know, uh, attachment-oriented uh, groups like SLAA and others, as well as uh, attachment psychologists. I believe Amir Levine and uh, Omri Gilead and others mentioned this is to do a dispassionate inventory that covers our past and present relationships from the perspective of attachment theory. Uh, what's the good news is, is that every time you recall a memory, you can actually change the way the memory is uh, framed in your mind. And actually, for the better, you can actually change the patterns as you begin to look at them from a different perspective. And if you change the memories, you even change in uh, your, your adult life the way you respond in new relationships. So I put asked, uh, we have the relationship inventory questions in the chat area, if you want to copy them. Uh, I'll just go over them quickly, which is one, you write down the names of important people and relationships. And then in the first column, you write what attracted us to this person. You know, was it the fact that they were funny, uh good looking and uh were they confident were they successful were they friendly were they attentive were they constantly bombarding us with um appreciation or uh uh what was it that drew us in the second is to bring to mind emotionally intense moments from the course of the relationship and ask um, what specific, you know, what specific events triggered strong emotional responses, just note them down, like a time where uh, my partner disappeared and I didn't know where they were, a time where, um, uh, suddenly in social setting, a partner 
flirted with other people or became very critical of things I said, or a time when I needed support due to things at work, they weren't available, write down specific important events. And then three is ask ourselves, how did we respond? Did we wait until we connected with them and ask for a clarification? Did we become uh, anxious about the state of the relationship? Did we start obsessing about what could be going on, start rereading texts or analyzing in our minds the last thing they said to us or what they've done? Did we become angry or did we seek distance or did we break up with the person? Uh, the next quality is note what the long-term outcome of these actions were. Did we feel better after we took this response, closer, safer? Or did we feel less confident in the relationship, more distant? Did the, did the relationship never heal? And, or what was, how did we feel? Did we feel worse after we acted? And then the last fifth column is to visualize what the secure individual would have done. What was the secure choice? Visualize someone who feels confident in relationships, doesn't uh, become triggered by times when, as much when their partner isn't available, has a good reliance on, on availability of friendships, has other people to reach out to, and just ask ourselves what the secure choice would be. If you don't know, call up somebody who's been in a very, very long-term relationship and is happy and ask them what they would have done in the same situation. The more we understand the difference between uh, our reactions and the secure response, the more we can begin to have choices in the future as to how we respond to relationship stressors. So finally, security visualizations have been talked about by uh, priming uh, uh, what secure images to, so that we become increasingly secure, have been talked about by the work of Dan Brown at Harvard, Omri Gilliath at Kansas, I believe Mario McEwenser and Philip Shaver. Um, it's uh, visualizing uh, someone who provided the core characteristics of security, which are once again, somebody who's available someone who's interested in how we feel and understands, is empathetic, someone who's soothing, and someone who's appreciative of our growth and our creativity. Um, so we visualize this person and we stimulate an embodied positive secure response. When we prime security, uh, it can be as simple as thinking about how people in the past have acted in ways that made us feel safe and important. So for example, it could be a time when a teacher uh, in a class that we struggled in grade school or high school 
and instead of being angry or frustrated with us, took the time to ask us what uh, we needed, was interested in what we were experiencing at home, um, or perhaps a relative or the parent of a friend who stepped in to help us when our caregivers weren't emotionally available or attentive. Some people use entirely uh, figures they've never met, like Mr. Rogers. And some people will use um, figures that are entirely imagistic. In early Buddhism, the Buddha talked about how important for one's security the Deva Nusati practice of visualizing angelic, caring figures that are always with us and won't abandon us. In fact, many attachment theorists have noted that uh, the role that some people use for God in various religions is simply to repair attachment disturbances from childhood. Because when people visualize a God of their own understanding, they choose a figure that's loving, appreciative, always available, and always attentive. So in our practice, we're going to do some security priming. And I think that's all I'm going to blather on about, about incompatible relationships and um, the difficulties they face and also the ways to address. So um, I thank you for listening. And uh, while you find a comfortable position for the meditation portion, if you would like to support my work, all of which is done entirely by donation, the uh, Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC, or the PayPal is on the website, Dharma Punks NYC. So that's it. That's my pitch for keeping me financially going. So find a seated upright position, or if you want to do this meditation lying down, that's fine as well. And um, for this meditation, probably a little bit more helpful to close the eyes, but as always, it's your choice. Don't feel you have to do something that's uncomfortable for you. And we're just going to start out the practice by choosing the most soothing practice that um, we can. So for some of us, that might simply be uh, the four or five breath, where we breathe in for four beats, counting to four, and then breathe out to five. So the out breath is a little longer than the in breath. And when we breathe in, we just allow the abdomen to be soft and receive the breath. As it expands, it feels like it's pulling in the inhalation. And that's quite slow. And then as we breathe out, we're not pushing out the air, we're simply releasing, allowing 
So it's receiving the in-breath and releasing the out. Now, if this is not for everyone the most soothing practice, for many, simply closing the eyes and listening to sounds in your environment arise and pass, extending the sense of the mind beyond the boundaries of the head so that you feel like every event around you is happening inside of your mind, which it is, of course, from the most distant sound of traffic or planes or people talking to the most proximal sound from the direct environment in which you're practicing. And when we listen, we don't, we don't visualize. We simply stay with whatever sound or lack of sound is occurring. If we don't hear anything, we don't get bored or drift away. We just pay attention to silence with the same degree of interest as we do to sound. In one's meditation practice, when one begins to be aware of all the times that the mind is silent and become appreciative of it, rather than always fixated on the thoughts and ruminations that float through the mind, then we become happier and more at peace internally. And so that appreciation and awareness of silence in the mind starts by being aware of silence around us. Now, third possibility for people who like to keep their eyes open is simply to rest your gaze on something that's very soothing. For some, it's a candle. Some people have a, an altar or mantelpiece or something that they stare at or a plant. And just rest the gaze. And as you rest the gaze, try to relax any part of your body that becomes antsy or wants to pull away. Another practice which is useful for helping us visualize objects and is which is helpful is to create a very simple shape in the mind. The Buddha said a square or a circle and give that very simple shape a color yellow, blue, green, etc. 
And then slowly in this what's called nimitta meditation, one of the oldest meditations in the Dharma, just expand the size of that shape and color until it consumes everything in your mind and just give yourself over to this expansive internal visualization. So there's many others. There's roughly 40 meditation practices that are mentioned by the Buddha, but let's start with one of those or any others you are familiar with and just sit for a while, just bringing your attention back again and again to whatever object of awareness you're cultivating, not adding any self-criticism. There's no way to do this wrong. It's just a practice. We're just trying to get as relaxed and peaceful as we can at this point.
So at this point, we're going to transition to the security priming meditation or visualization, which has been practiced for some 2,500 years. It was a very important part of the Dharma. So for this practice, it's important not to overthink it or to be overly self-critical, simply to bring to mind any figure, either alive or no longer living, or a figure that is entirely imaginary, that we associate with the qualities of understanding, caring, soothing, appreciative, a figure that is available. And this is just either an image or a name. If you're not good at visualizations, no worry, just open to what it would feel like to be with a figure that cared and was soothing, was interested, was appreciative. So it's helpful at times to put a hand on one's heart center, the apex of the vagal nerve, which not only controls the pace of the heart, but it also lies at the very hub of our emotional expression to activate the vagal nerve simply by putting a warm hand resting or a hand on the back of the neck or even on the forehead. And just to visualize a scenario of being with or being cared for. If that's difficult, if no image comes to mind, simply Ask yourself, how would it feel to be with someone who was responsive, interested, had no agenda, just wanted to be with us as we processed difficult or lonely times in life? Just ask how that would feel and see if you can relax the body into that place of feeling taken care of in some way.
Another approach is to visualize someone either real or fictional who seems secure. Someone who seems confident but not arrogant. Someone who balances friendship and relationship. Someone who's creative and not overly frightened of what others think. And if you can imagine this person, just imagine them with you, showing you what, how to live in a more secure way. So I'd like to note that while for many visualizing any kind of secure image or situation is very difficult, it does get easier. But like all therapeutically helpful practices, we have to keep doing it, which means not so much the duration in any sitting, but doing it every day, day in and day out. And over time, it does work, but it requires that diligent dedication. So I'm going to ring the bowl in a moment.
And when you hear the sound, take your time. And when it feels right, just gently return from the meditation 